quarter to uh, four, and I'd like to welcome you to the eighth Dr. Gio Beasley Murray Memorial Lecture, sponsored by, if that's the right word, uh, Spurgeon's College. And my name is Nigel Wright, and I'm the principal of Spurgeon's College, and it's a delight to, uh, to welcome you to this occasion. Just to explain that this uh, series of lectures was established in 2002 with the intention of prolonging the theological legacy of Dr. George Beasley Murray into the 21st century. And over the years, those who have uh, given the lecture have picked up one or other aspect of George's interests, of his theological contribution, and have uh, spoken to that. Not necessarily expounding what he said, so much as uh, reflecting in the same area and trying to make positive contributions to our thinking. And obviously, as George Beasley Murray was principal of Spurgeon's College, which trains ministers, the whole idea of ministerial formation fits very happily into that legacy. Just to say that there will be two further uh, lectures next year and the year after. Uh, this was intended as a 10-year series. And next year, Professor Brian Stanley of the University of Edinburgh will be lecturing on some area uh, relating to the Baptist Union and BMS. Um, historically and hopefully also thinking about the future. Uh, so that's something to look forward to next year, but more about that in due course. I'm very pleased to introduce our lecturer today, Dr. Ruth Goldborn, who also studied at Spurgeon's College uh, some time ago and uh, pastored at John Bunyan Baptist Church in Bedford and then became a tutor at Bristol Baptist College in church history in particular. And uh, then some years ago she became the minister of uh, Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church, where she continues. She is also uh, an associate research fellow at Spurgeon's College. We have this habit of snapping people up who seem to be going spare. Uh, and, uh, I don't mean spare in that way. But, uh, and um, we're delighted that uh, Ruth is associated with us in that way. That gives me a chance to mention another associate research fellow at Spurgeon's College, and that's Dr. Paul Goodliffe, who is the head of uh, the Department of Ministry. And he recently completed his Doctor of Ministry degree, which is now published, very fast work, this, I have to say, uh, very, very quickly published as this book, Ministry, Sacrament, and Representation. And uh, Paul is well placed to talk about our current understanding of ministry, and I commend this book to you. I've not read it, but um, <laughs> I commend that on the basis of having read parts of it so far. And when I've saved up money, I'll buy a copy of my own. But it'll take me a long time to save up. So I'll leave that there, Ruth, because you may want to refer to it. So it's a delight to have Ruth, and what a great title. Now, who would come to a lecture entitled In Praise of Incompetence? Answer. <laughs> A whole series of Baptist ministers <laughs> who clearly have uh, identified with the title. The subtitle is Ministerial Formation and the Development of a Rooted Person. And I've been very much looking forward to this because I just have a little suspicion that there's a little bit of counterculture here. You know, we, we all work now in Baptist colleges to 12 competencies which are supposed to... Uh, stake out the territory of what ministers should be able to be and do. And that certainly shapes the nature of theological education. So one lecture titled uh, 
with, uh, with the title Embrace of Incompetence, might be a little bit running against the tide, but we'll see if that's the case. Uh, if there's time at the end, we'll have some questions and possibly some answers, um, but uh, we're going to give most of the time, of course, to Ruth. So I invite you to welcome Dr. Ruth. Thank you. Hello. Thank you. I was a bit worried that all I was going to see was the, the screen. Well, it is a great honour to be invited to present this year's George Beasley Murray Memorial Lecture. I haven't managed to attend all of those which have gone before, but those that I have heard have impressed and delighted me by being erudite and interesting and provocative of further thought. And further, they have all appeared to start with at least a memory or a reference to George Beasley Murray himself, and usually with much more, usually with a gracious tribute, an expression of gratitude for what he meant as a friend, as a scholar, as a mentor. That I am here today to offer this lecture is in itself a tribute to George Beasley Murray as a significantly scholarly presence in our community but I never knew him. And I have not studied issues with which he engaged creatively. But not the least part of his impact upon Baptists in this country was to be part of the creation and the sustaining of a context where ideas matter and where questions are important and where reflection is taken seriously. And that's the context in which, to my deep gratitude, I have been nurtured. I didn't know him, so I can make no claim to come with the memories I've heard others offer. And I haven't made a serious study of his writing. But I'm one of those whose life and ministry has been profoundly shaped by the context he was part of creating. And so I've been delighted to accept this invitation this year and to stand in the line of those predecessors I mentioned, erudite, thought-provoking, stimulating, serious scholars whose work I have benefited from. Of course, the experience of doing this provokes me to a very important question, why me and what am I supposed to do about it? And lest you think that this is a falsely modest attempt to win your sympathy, let me disclaim any such intention. Rather, it's that this question comes easily to my mind on this occasion because it is the question that is always on my mind particularly when questions of calling and formation and the practice of ministry are under consideration. And since that's the context in which, for the purposes of this lecture, my link to George Beasley Murray is being made, it is the question that is unavoidable. I don't intend to interact directly with Beasley Murray's thinking on these topics, but to indicate what I hope is a possible beginning for thinking about thinking further on issues that he took so seriously, to ask as a minister, as one who has been and to some extent still is involved in the initial and continuing formation of ministers, to ask as a member of a church and so one who looks for ministry, why am I here? What am I supposed to do? What is this? The question of what a minister is, is a perennial one amongst Baptists. That we need ministers, or better, that God gives us ministers, is, has been accepted amongst Baptists from very early on. 
the actual title, to say nothing of the role, has and remains, has been and remains a matter of constant negotiation and renegotiation. We have argued. We have argued about whether ministers are linked only to one congregation or whether there's an appropriate form of wider ministry. And if there is an appropriate form of wider ministry, what is its authority and oversight role? We have argued, sometimes very bitterly, about whether our ministers should be trained. And even if we've agreed that they should be trained, we have argued about what they should be trained in. Languages and science, scripture, preaching. Sometimes got ourselves into the position where those are seen as mutually exclusive. We have argued over ordination. Should it happen? Should it not happen? If it does happen, what does it mean? And it's that argument that's probably the most common area of discussion amongst us at the moment, though it's by no means new. In its current form, it presents itself as a choice between ministry as functional or ministry as sacramental. Simplistic, but to put it simplistically, is a minister somebody who is called to do certain things and therefore set apart by a community in order that these things, these functions should be carried out? Or is a minister somebody whose ordination is, to quote a previous lecturer, John Colwell, an action of the spirit mediated through human instrumentality and so to be ordained means, as he says, it is not merely that I have been called to do or to perform. I have been separated to this ministry. This is now the manner and focus of my life. It's important to notice, of course, that the difference between these two is not necessarily visible in, uh, in what any individual minister actually does day to day. The difference in this discussion is in whether in the act of ordination and the context which it therefore creates for the continuing practice of ministry, God is at work in a particular way. It's not even a question of whether God is at work or not. An ordination or a commissioning service includes prayers, so therefore there's at least an implicit assumption that God is at work. <laughs> the difference might be best expressed as, am I a minister because I do certain things, dependent on the grace of God in order to serve God and the people of God, or, do I do certain things because, through the grace and action of God, I am a minister called to serve? And it is a difference that exists amongst us. And people write eloquently on both sides, and no doubt will continue to do so. One of our gifts as Baptists is being able to live in the light, in the tension of such questions, and to continue the discussion, and on our good days, not to fall out about it, but to hear each other, to seek to discern the mind of Christ within the discussion of the community. Well, I refer to it as one of our gifts, one of the gifts that we bring to the wider church. But there are times when I wonder if, despite the fact it is a gift, a grace of God to us, sometimes we use it as an excuse. The perception that we will argue becomes the reason to avoid serious theological discussion and argument. There is a great deal of theological reflection going on in the studies of individuals in small groups of discussers, but there is difficulty in finding a place where we can have the wider discussion, where we can meet with people we disagree with and engage in sustained and long-term consideration of the issues that matter, or I believe should matter, to us about who we are as part of the people of God. And as we will go on to reflect, if you stay with me, we live in a social and professional context which is deeply functional, deeply pragmatic, 
and is shaped by patterns of measurement and meeting targets and being efficient. And it has to be said that arguing slowly, carefully, with respect, with enough time, with the hope of finding a way forward is not culturally the norm, nor is it very efficient, nor does it give quick results. It can look very inward focused and in a setting where we're all too aware of our shrinking capacity and the loss of numbers, it's natural that inward looking, looking towards questions that seem navel-gazing and irrelevant to those who haven't been introduced to lively faith, can seem unimportant. And that's to say nothing of the fact that all too often we are not actually able to argue well and to sustain relationships through our disagreements, or at least we fear that we're not, and so we don't do it. We have set up and we have allowed ourselves to be drawn into a situation in which we know there are disagreements among us. And even more, we actually have little in the way of a common mind regarding the questions about which we disagree, let alone the answers. There are various issues about which we have allowed this to develop. We've shied away from sustained theological, and I do mean theological and not pragmatic, theological discussions on various issues, and one of them is ministry. There are two positions, or better, there's a spectrum, which I've characterised as more or less sacramental. And both are among us. And we go on discussing, or we go on not discussing, without finding a way to explain ourselves to each other. But by allowing ourselves to be in a position where those two answers have shaped discussion about ministry, there has arisen a particular area of confusion. It is happenstance, but it's very useful. In this book, <laughs> Paul, Paul's research work for this book indicates that for the majority of those in ministry, a more rather than a less sacramental view of being a minister prevails. That is, an emphasis on being a minister preceding doing whatever it is a minister does. The phrase ministry as a way of being, which appeared in forms of ministry amongst Baptists, one of those seminal documents, is for many central to their perception of what, who they are, their self-understanding. We see it having an impact, as Chris Ellis points out in one of his articles about formation, in precisely that language that we use in the colleges. We talk about ministerial formation rather than ministerial training. And Chris says this is a, a shift away from seeing ministerial training as primarily the acquisition of knowledge and skills to a more holistic view in which character and calling are important perspectives. However, he goes on to point out that with what he calls the emergence of leadership studies and a tendency to professionalise ministerial identity, then the wind is set fair for a task-focused approach to ministerial training. That, by the way, comes from the article he wrote for Nigel Speshrift. I'm doing really well here, I'm sorry. Since most of those in our churches are not those whose primary formational context is self-consciously theological, but who are trained and who are effective in professional and work-based skills, for them, quite sensibly, a more task-focused and functional view of ministry prevails. And it's certainly visible amongst those who come to talk to ministers and colleges about the possibility of training. It's not uncommon. It's not universal, of course, but it's not uncommon for people to look for training in order to do the things that a minister can do. It's the way people expect to approach a job. It's the way those of us in congregations who are helping people discern a call to ministry are accustomed to think about a whole range of things because that's how we think about helping people find their way professionally, developmentally, if they're teachers or accountants or working in local government, whatever it is. And denominationally, such an approach is further reinforced 
by this need to satisfy a set of 12 competencies in order to complete initial training. And it is, as Nigel pointed out, from that aspect of this whole discussion that I take the title of this lecture. Much of what I've just said, I'm going to explain in more detail, but let me just make a couple of things clear first. It is not that I suggest that those who are ministers should be incompetent. Can I just make that very clear? Okay, that's actually not what I'm saying. It is, I believe, right and proper that our churches should be able to depend on and to assume that those whom we accredit and recognise are competent in appropriate things. And I think that the work done by the ministry office and between the ministry offices and office and the colleges and within the colleges has been very creative and very effective in making these competencies alive. And of course the competencies that are required and worked at and for which people are held accountable are by no means a minimalistic link list of tasks which bare title competence might suggest. This isn't just about being able to conduct a wedding or lead a baptismal class or light a rhetoric for the church magazine or organise a holiday club. Issues of ethics, of personal growth, of prayer, all of those things that make people people rather than automata doing things, they're included, they're involved in the way this work is developing. And yet, and yet it seems to me there are two areas open for further consideration. Firstly, if most ministers gravitate towards the more rather than the less sacramental end of the spectrum, why is there this confusion that those who come forward to explore a call to ministry shaped within our churches are often much more, at least at the beginning, concerned with developing skills in appropriate areas? And secondly, what happens if we're not competent? So where do we, why do we get the idea that ministry is, is primarily functional? And so ministerial training is to do with developing particular skills and gaining knowledge. It's one of the most frequent points of challenge, certainly when I was um, teaching in Bristol, that we worked with with incoming students to help them grasp that what their time at college was for is not only, perhaps not primarily, to educate them in ideas or equip them with skills, but rather to engage with them as people and to explore that growth and depth. And it's similarly a challenge with churches who are exploring working with ministers who are students. That at the heart of the process is not just getting the practice in the various functions. And it is very hard to resist, indeed it is so hard to resist, that it is important to ask that if in trying to challenge it we're going in the wrong direction. If it is our conviction that the local church is the primary, not the only, but the primary place where we discern the mind of Christ for who we are called to be, then we need to ask seriously if the discernment of the churches is that ministry among us is ultimately functional, focused on doing rather than being, and that those of us who regard being as primary are perhaps guilty of overcomplicating, or even worse, of a creeping or perhaps galloping clericalism. And it may be so. The distinction between doing and being, of course, is a false one. Put like that, understanding ministry as primarily doing is itself a way of being a way shaped by action, defined by function. But even taking that into account, I want to suggest another possibility for how the conversation is being shaped, well rehearsed in the discussion, but nevertheless important to my overall theme. In viewing our ministry as primarily doing rather than being, I suggest it is less the mind of Christ we are discerning, but more the spirit of the age in two ways. 
Firstly, there is an unhealthy emphasis on productivity, on people as units of production, judged on the basis of what they achieve. This is the important bit. The basis of what they achieve in the light of the overall aims of the organisation. People are less important than the organisation. They must do what the organisation needs. And that arises, secondly, from a loss of or an ineffective theology of the nature and the purpose of the church and therefore derivatively of ministry. It's a commonplace to polarise discussion around whether the current mode of making explicit use of good business management practice in church life and structure is healthy or unhealthy. And for many, the skills and practices of understanding how organisations work and how to help them work well and purposefully is a significant gift to, of our age to be used judiciously, certainly, but gladly and gratefully. For others, this constitutes an invasion which distorts and damages the life of the community of the people of God and is to be resisted. At the heart of both positions, however, is the conviction that unless good theology is being done about church, about its purpose, about its being, then we are in trouble. And I want to suggest that this is, in fact, the issue. We are in danger of not doing good theology about the church. And without such good theology, then we're all too open to an uncritical use of models and practices from various structures without their contextual constraints. So unless we have thought through theologically what the church is for, the practices that we adopt to make it work well, and therefore the understanding, the expectation we bring to those who operate within it, and especially ministers, will be driven by models that just don't fit. And I think there is evidence for this visible in our language, for example, in how we pay our ministers. Always an issue of contention and debate from the beginning for a long time. The language of stipend is used, and indeed is still used in our formal language. A stipend is a sum of money, a grant, paid over to an individual to free them from the necessity of earning their living so that without constraint they were available to the service of the community. A salary. The language now much more commonly used is the proper reward for the fulfilment of a task. It is paid by an employer to an employee and it carries with it certain expectations of what that task will be. Now, again, I am not arguing against proper living conditions. I grew up in a manse, I live in a manse, I want to be paid. Our ministers need to live free from financial worries. But the change of language indicates and then shapes the way as congregations we think about what the minister is for the church. All the more so because as far as I can tell, this isn't discussed. The language just drifts. Similar shift is visible in the discussion of working hours, of time off, of availability and so on. Now again, I am deeply grateful for some of the guidelines on such things. I am profoundly glad to serve in a church, as many of us do, which is very careful of its minister, which takes seriously, even when she doesn't, her need for rest and refreshment and self-care. And I don't want to suggest that such care and attention is anything other than good and godly. But nevertheless, it is a shift, and it's a shift into viewing the ministry as a profession and functioning as such vis-a-vis -vis the congregation. And I'm left with the question of whether this is a theological shift. Or rather, it is a theological shift. It's a shift with theological implications. But is this a theology that's coherent with the rest of our theology? And I suggest it isn't. 
at least I think, if I have understood Paul properly and if Paul's research is accurate, which of course it is. <laughs> but it looks as if the majority of ministers do have a more rather than a less sacramental view of ministry. They do view their calling as primarily a way of being rather than uh, the results of various kinds of doing. And if that is so, then we see a lack of congruence between how our ministers see themselves and how our churches see both our ministers and themselves. And my suggestion is that this is significantly so because we've forgotten to think about what it means to be a church and how to do that. And all kinds of tributaries feed into that. The functional ecumenism with which we live, which is good in so many ways, does mean that our reasons for being involved with a particular congregation are less to do with ecclesiological convictions and more to do with the fact that we fit. The style, the activity, even the fact it's the nearest church are all good reasons for going, but they're not ecclesiological reasons. None of them are wrong. But in terms of being part of that particular church he's thinking through of issues around what it means to be a church, what it means to be a minister, it does lead away from the commitment to the convictions that have shaped us in the past. The emphasis, again, an absolutely right emphasis, but the emphasis on a mission identity is another tributary. Course mission is our agenda. We are the people of a God whose intention is the reconciliation of all creation. But living as we do, in a wider context of value through productivity and identity through function, our mission identity can be subverted in ways that reinforce rather than challenge such notions, leading to the conviction that a successful church is a productive church and its entailed statement, successful ministry is productive ministry, with productivity defined in a very particular way. And we have heard it run through this assembly. A third tributary is another of our strengths, our capacity and depth of lay leadership and our failure too often to offer proper theological resources. Last year, I went to Nigel's seminar on what it is to be a Baptist church, and it was packed to overflowing. Now, all credit to Nigel and his skills as a thinker and a communicator. But I think it also reflects a recognition amongst folk in our churches that it helps to have these theological tools. Because without them, the only available instruments for thinking about the church and how to be the church and all the rest of it comes from all sorts of other places perhaps other theological traditions, perhaps other organisational contexts altogether. There are all sorts of other tributaries, but time precludes, and I haven't got back to my title yet. But my basic point here is that there is a mismatch between how the majority of our ministers think about ministry and how our churches are thinking about ministry, and that that's significant and has an impact. And the idea that ministers should be trained in certain competencies makes perfect sense to most people in, in our churches as does the idea of review, of continual personal development and all the other skill-based paraphernalia. That is not a pejorative term. And as I hope I've made clear, I certainly don't want to dismiss it. I don't want to suggest that somehow ministry is in some kind of rarefied sphere that is beyond such things. Or even that all ministers inevitably imbibe such things and that no competence and no accountability is necessary. I do want to go further. I do want to suggest that this professionalisation of ministry, while it brings all sorts of goods with it, is not something we should walk into blindfoldedly theologically. If we come together theologically to the conclusion that ministry is defined by and contained within doing, then this model of competence, 
of appropriate skill and knowledge, of a salary and line management may well be perfectly justified and healthy. But at the moment, the sense amongst many ministers is the conviction that they are called to be and therefore to do, rather than the fact that they do certain things and therefore are ministers. And if this is so, then a formation that focuses on competencies and a community that judges them on the basis of their doing and their productivity and a set of skills that structure what we do rather than who we are are just not going to be enough. And that's where my original question comes from. Why am I here and what am I supposed to do? And if the way I as a minister answer that is different from my congregation and my union, then where does that leave me? And what resources do I have and what resources does my congregation have to make sense of it all and to understand how we work together? And that leads to the second question. What happens if I am or am perceived to be incompetent and unproductive and ineffective? And clearly at one level, the answer is completely straightforward. If I make a mess of my job, then I either have to increase my skills and knowledge or I have to get out. While accepting that training and testing of competencies and skills is part is an important part of the training of the ministers, I am convinced it cannot be the whole. And I recognise that those who have taken responsibility for working out what these competencies should be and those who have worked out how to include them in the curriculum, they are by no means saying that that's all there is to be a minister. Nobody's saying that. But in a world where worth is all too easily defined by productivity and activity is measured primarily by effectiveness, and where the role of the minister in a wider society and often within our churches is not clear and can feel very insecure, we can't afford to give hostages to fortune. Many of those who offer themselves as ministers come from a work context in which those models predominate. And many of those in our churches experience this as their own context and without anything to, any other way of thinking about it, have no reason to think of their minister in any other way. And so without anybody intending it, our day-to-day -day understanding of ministry becomes functionalist and competence-based only. And I want to suggest that ministry often happens actually at the very edge of or even beyond our competence. In those moments when the preacher comes face to face with the mysteriousness of scripture, when having used all the tools of analysis and criticism and rhetoric and all the other skills we develop, there is finally the confrontation with the living word that invites us to dare to speak what can't be spoken and to trust that the living word will communicate. That's a moment of ministry. And in those moments when the pastor is confronted by the mystery of another person, in the reality of question or joy or grief, when despite all the skills of counselling and care, there is in the end simply the meeting of one human being with another in the presence of the presence that is greater than them both, there's a moment of ministry. And in those moments when the overseer or the leader is silenced by the complexity and the intractability of the community, and despite all the administrative and managerial skills available, there is no obvious way to make it happen, but just the invitation to watch and wait and let go of control, there's a moment of ministry. And when the evangelist loses the words and runs out of arguments and can't engage a response through gift and talent expertly deployed, but gladly and breathlessly observes the spirit transform a life, there's a moment of ministry. When a person of prayer falls silent 
and loses touch with the images and hasn't the conviction of the presence but can only offer themselves to allow the prayer to happen is ministry. Being skilled and competent matters. Skills and competencies will sustain us through significant parts of our daily activities and they will allow our congregations the relaxation of knowing they can trust us and they don't have to worry about us or worry for us. But if skills and competencies define our ministry, we run the risk of fearing to go beyond what we know we can do and where we are confident, what it feels like we can accomplish. And our activity and our service become what we can do rather than our openness to what the Spirit does through us. And it's in our incompetence, in our unskilledness, beyond who we think we are and what we think we can safely do, it's there, I suggest, we discover the country of the Spirit's ministry and the transformational activity of everlasting love. And here's where a conviction about ministry as sacramental begins to take a particular shape. For those of us, and you'll know where I do stand, but for those of us with a more sacramental view of ministry, our starting point tends to be that the act of ordination is a sacramental act, a means of grace, that in the prayers and the laying on of hands, God is active and grace is mediated. In his book, Participating in God, Paul Fiddis takes this further. He cites Austin Farrer, and he reflects on the idea of the minister as a walking sacrament. And Fiddis further defines that as a living symbol of the sacrificial and persuasive love of Christ. And he goes on like this. The whole point of a sacrament is that it is a piece of weak, created, and fallible stuff in itself, but it is a doorway into the life of the triune God. Precisely in its frailty, the sacrament symbolizes an ultimate value. In those moments I refer to early, when ministry happens beyond our competence, out with our control, are moments of sacramental ministry. When the weak created and fallible stuff becomes the means of grace and the place of God's action. The conviction that ministry is sacramental is the conviction, not that somehow ministers are, are more special or more graced or more set apart than not ministers. It's the conviction that ministry is God's activity and that just as water becomes more than it is in the act of baptism and bread and wine become more than they are in the act of communion without ceasing to be water and bread and wine, created stuff. So the minister becomes more than she is, not by doing or even in order to do, but because God moves through her in grace. And just as moments of covenant promise and renewal and forgiveness and nourishment are not limited to acts of baptism and communion, but can happen wherever the freedom of God chooses, so the ministering grace of God isn't limited to the minister. But a conviction about this kind of sacramental ministry entails the conviction that this is one of the places where God promises graciously to be present to the people of God. Water, bread and wine require certain characteristics to be water, bread and wine. Without appropriate physical attributes, they will be something else. There is no reason why the something else should not in the freedom of God be a means of grace, but the physical attributes of water, bread and wine are not enough in themselves to make them the means of grace that they are in baptism and communion. Our competencies are necessary, but they are not sufficient. In free grace, God ministers among us. In the economy of God, there are appointed those, recognised those, who carry the particular promise of the gracious presence and action. The competence may be understood to provide some of the basic stuffness, but the promised gracious ministry of God that is mediated through these sacramental presences is not competence, something of a different order altogether. 
Thus far, we might compare the sacramental nature of ministry with that of water, bread, and wine in acts of communion and baptism. But unlike water, bread, and wine, we are not inert and unreflective. We are conscious and self-conscious beings with wills and intentions, and we have things we're able to do and things we cannot do. We have activities we undertake, and we have points where we fail. And a concern with developing competencies, quite rightly, looks to minimise the points of failure. But on the basis of this understanding of sacraments and of the activity of God in ministry, I want also to argue that when a minister goes beyond the limits of competence and fails, there is also a kingdom moment, or at least the possibility of it. If we dare to trust that a, weak, a piece of weak, created and fallible stuff is a doorway into the life of the triune God. There are two consequences of this that make it very daunting. The first is the possibility that by going beyond what we know we can do, we will fail. Indeed, it's more than a possibility, it's a certainty. At least sometimes, and possibly more frequently than that, and those who are ministers dare to move beyond what they know they can do. It won't work, or at the very least, it won't work in the way they thought it would. The sermon won't be powerful. The pastoral care won't bring healing. The oversight won't energise the congregation. The, the evangelism will not create revival. And the kingdom is not yet. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes what we long for and trust in happens around and through and even despite us. But sometimes it doesn't. And we are simply incompetent. And does it matter? We talk sometimes too glibly, about the important thing not being success but faithfulness. And it's true. Ours is to serve faithfully and leave the harvest to God. But how radically dare we embrace this? Can we trust ourselves to a gracious love that loves us in our incompetence? Can we as ministers model to and for our congregations the reality that the grace we give ourselves to is not affected by success or failure or competence or incompetence? And can we as congregations trust in this kind of grace enough to forgive an incompetent minister who has dared to go beyond and failed? Now I know this is risky stuff. We know too many of us have experienced the pain that incompetent ministers inflict on individuals and congregations. And such hurt is not to be ignored and not to be dismissed. And the disrepute into which the church and the gospel are brought when people get it badly wrong is not something we dare to take lightly. So I do not want to be heard to say that our competencies and skills are unimportant. But if we create a context where the fear of failure prevents the openness to possibility, the willingness to move beyond what we know we can do, the daring to take a risk and fail, then I suggest we undermine one of the truths of the gospel. That before God we are all failures. And that's not the point. It's not the point because our standing before our life within God arises not from our achievements or our successes, but from grace, forgiveness and redeeming love. To take that seriously is for sure not to condone willful carelessness or unthinking risk-taking which will cause intentional or even unnoticed damage to others or ourselves. But it is to insist that the preaching of the grace of God calls us, as ministers and as congregations, also to explore living in that grace and extending it to each other. A model of ministry that is task or function focused can allow the growth of a judgmental approach. If these tasks are not fulfilled, 
then there is failure, there is blame, there is disappointment, there's a breakdown in trust, there may even be an end of a relationship. To admit we are wrong, to be able to accept this, to apologise and to keep going, is surprisingly difficult. Not only to do it, though that can be hard enough, but for it to be heard. To admit we have been wrong as a minister, to accept our failure and its consequences without defending ourselves, or trying to deny the mistake or the failure, is, as all such recognitions and apologies are, is hard. Saying sorry is not easy. But hearing a sorry is also not easy. Not only because those who are hurt have to then discover the capacity to forgive, and that in itself is a grace, but also because it is so countercultural. To hear an apology and not to try and comfort the apologiser, or to add to the blame, or at its simplest, to treat this as something major and unusual and strange, is surprisingly difficult. I step away from my script for a moment just to say, at my last deacons meeting, I said sorry for something I'd got badly wrong. And was overwhelmed by people who said, that was such a big thing to do. And I discovered this, I can't say, no it wasn't, because that makes it sound as if it was unimportant. But actually it isn't. These are people I love and trust. I made a mistake. But they felt it was very difficult to hear me say sorry. Somehow we don't know how to hear sorry as well as to say it. And yet, for most of us, most of the times we meet in worship, we include in our being together prayers in which we confess our sin and our failure, and we ask for and we expect forgiveness from God. So why then is it so hard to do it with and before each other? One of the gifts of failure, of incompetence, if as ministers we dare to live with it, if as congregations we trust the faith we live by, is to discover the meaning of confession and forgiveness, not just as words in a prayer, all too easily glossed over as things we can say and that are just a ritual, but as who we are and how we live. If we are truly willing to embrace a foundational theology of grace and forgiveness and resurrection, then we will discover the capacity to allow for and recover from failure. And by recovery, I don't just mean knowing better how to do it next time, though that may be involved, I mean, recovering the sen recovery in the sense of maintaining relationships, exploring forgiveness, trusting in the renewing, indeed in the resurrecting grace of God, the transforming of deadly failure into life. So I also want to argue that when the minister goes beyond the limits of competence and fails, there is also, or at least can be, a kingdom moment. If we will trust that a piece of weak, fragile, created stuff is a doorway into the life of the triune God. That is, we glimpse and we are brought into the life of God, into greater Christ-likeness, as we dare to live trustingly in offering each other not judgment and blame, but forgiveness and renewal and nourishment for the journey to continue. Within this model, then, it's not just the act of ordination that's sacramental. It's the life of ministry itself. The life given to ministry becomes, in grace, not through special gift, skill, not through special capacity, but in grace, a sign of grace, and an encounter for others with grace. One fearful aspect of taking our incompetence seriously is discovering that we fail. Another is what is discovering that what matters is not what we do, but who we are. What makes ministry is not activity, but person. 
Ministry as a way of being has become an important phrase in this discussion, and it is not the easy option. Developing Fiddesy's notion of a, the fallible stuffness of sacrament, ministry as a way of being is to do with the ministry, minister learning in the very depths of her being that she is not God. That in all the ways that finally matter, she is incompetent. And that it is in and through her radical incompleteness that God uses her. And in her unskilledness that grace is mediated. To understand ourselves as competent is to know ourselves as self-contained, as autonomous, as self-sufficient. And the story in Genesis tells us that in this is our alienation from God. Central to the definition of competence is the capacity to manipulate the world and achieve a desired outcome. And that cuts across this sense of radical incompleteness. The sense that in any final or complete sense we can manipulate the world is a dangerous delusion. I wrote a large part of this lecture sitting in uh, IBTS in Prague. I wasn't supposed to be there, but the ash stopped the planes flying. And we could do nothing about it. It is ultimately the attempt to be like or to be God. To take final control into our own hands. This desire to be absolutely competent. And the conviction that we know what the desired outcome in any situation may be is also part of this definition of competence. We may know what we desire, but can we claim authoritatively to know in detail what God desires? Such a self-understanding and such a way of acting is in the end to make ourselves as gods, to desire to be those who are control, in control and are complete. But the truth of being human is that we are not God. And to live as a minister in the truth of the radical incompleteness, the radical uncertainty of this existential reality is both fearful and to discover the gift of incompetence. It's to live the truth of being human joyfully and trustingly and without denial. Such a position is a profound shift of a person's sense of self and, more to the point, it is profoundly a countercultural sense of self. In a context in which self-determination and self-definition or invention and autonomy are held as fundamental goods. In a world in which achievement is measured by targets met and systems adhered to. And the conviction of and willingness to live in the reality of incompleteness and incompetence puts us at odds with those around us. But it is a gospel truth that we are human and we are sinners. And both truths about us are no more easily spoken in our time than any other time. But fundamental to speaking such truth is the willingness and the daring to live them. The conviction that the church is a gathered, gathering people of God contains within it the conviction that such a community is a place for experimenting how to live the life of the, the kingdom and a place of apprenticeship to discover how to live this life. The life of a human person in relationship with God, with other people and with creation. It's the exploration of what it is to be human, freed from the burden of trying to be God, daring to trust in the forgiving, redeeming grace as our identity and as the gift we offer to one another. To explore this identity entails being willing to embrace the existential reality of ultimate and radical incompetence. And for the minister to do this, in full view of and without defence against the congregation and the wider world is a matter of being. 
The English term parson as a denominator for the clergyman is the same word derived from the same root as person. Does that come across with my accent? <laughs> parson and person. Diagrams of the great English vowel shift will be supplied on request. <laughs> but here is one of the vital aspects of being a minister. It is to be a person. Not a set of functions, not a meter of needs, not a provider of services, but a person in relation to God and to other people. So who we are as ministers matters. Knowing ourselves, living as those who are as fully human as we can be, living out this human life in God before and for our congregation so they can see it as possible. Living it out in the world so that people discover the truth of God's presence. This in itself challenges our culture of achievement and productivity and consumption. In a context where human reality and worth are defined by those things, where identity and security are so often bound up with them, the minister is called to a way of life that is not so shaped. Wasting time in prayer. Offering space and energy to intractable problems without needing to solve them. And without giving them up when they can't be solved. Refusing to allow our worth to be expressed or limited by what is achieved on a to-do list. All of this requires a basic commitment to being incompetent, unskilled, in the sense of not forcing the world to be what we choose and of not abrogating to ourselves the self-sufficiency that asserts our autonomy. Such incompetence is not easily achieved and not straightforwardly maintained. The pool of doing what we can do, the draw of being seen to be able to cope, is huge. But this kind of incompetence the acceptance of what it is to be human, to be weak, created and fallible, is, I believe, in the end, the heart of ministry, for it is the heart of discipleship. Why do I believe it? Because it is, in the end, the way that God is with us, if the incarnation is true. In the incarnation, we see the second person of the Trinity embrace and live in the reality of incompetence. Incompetence in both its senses. A ministry and a movement for transformation that ends with a criminal's execution is hardly a success. And a life lived as fully human, with its refusal of self-determination and self-definition, even for protection's sake, is a life that lives fully the incompetence of incompleteness. And if that is the way God chooses to minister to us, why should we choose to minister to each other any differently?
where I wrestle is, where do we find this biblically, that there are leaders who are called to a different way of being as distinct from the whole community? You talk about ministers being risk-taking. You see, we have a list of values for us as a church, as a community. We say we're called to be risk-takers and God-trusters. It's not just the minister, it's the people of God. I, I don't think, actually, I'm saying it's only, I'm certainly not intending to say only the minister. I don't think, actually, we're that far apart, Paul. I think my, my argument towards the end where I'm saying the minister does this is because if a congregation is going to learn to do this, someone has to do it first. That's the only thing I'm trying to say. I don't, I mean, I think that what I, what I have said about being a minister is actually what I'm trying to say about being a disciple. And some of us are called to live out our discipleship within a particular role, which is a particular public place within a congregation. I don't think, put it down to my incompetence if I did, but I don't think I'm saying ministers are somehow not the same as the congregation. But there is something about having somebody in the congregation who will say, not just, this is what we should do, but look, I'm willing to do it, are you? I think that's what I'm trying to get to. Because for most of us, our our professional life and our social life guards us against this model, trains us against it. You know, to be incompetent as a teacher or as a social worker or as a doctor is a bad thing. And so it's quite hard to learn how to do it within the church. So for the minister to be able to stand up and say, this is, let's take risks and I will do it. Let's all do it together. I think that's what I was trying to get to, not as something separated out. So I'm sorry if that wasn't clear. So thank you for the question. That's helped. That helps make it clear. Okay. We've got some experts present. Uh, Derek, Tedball. Ruth, thank you so much. The so many things you said that I would want to affirm, uh, particularly in terms of failure and so on. Uh, so many things I, I just struggle with. I do think, not only in your lecture, but generally, the contrast between being and doing is grossly overdrawn. We know who we are by what we do. And for every time I hear people say, ah, we are supposed to go be, I reflect that Jesus said to the uh, uh, lawyer after telling the parable of the Good Samaritan, go and do. And we sometimes underplay that. I think the functional end was caricatured, if I may say so. I also, with Paul, would come much more from the functional end and believe that well before contemporary discussions of management and, 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 and so on. I think where I struggle is over the use of sacramental, mm-hmm. which does suggest a different order of person and lead us in what I would regard as an unbiblical view of dividing the body of Christ between clergy and laity. And that's because the word sacrament brings with it a whole uh, amount of baggage, whether we like it or not. I've written myself in this area and think the contrast is probably between covenant and contract. And contemporary language is about fulfilling a contract, Mm -hmm. whereas pastors, as part of the body of Christ, we are all covenanted to work together. And if you use that language, I think the barriers between those of us who are more functional uh, would quite clearly be removed. that, That would be interesting. I would be interested to explore that. I think... I, I accept what you say that I may have caricatured, though I was very careful to say I, I don't think there's a distinction because to, as it were, 
in caricature terms, to define yourself by doing is a way of being. I mean, I, you, can't, you can't separate them. And I did say, you know, I, I wanted to say that quite clearly. Um, but I, I, yeah, I think that covenant and contract, I can see what you're getting at, but I think there is, um, a, I'll go back to what I said about the ordination service, there is something, we are expecting something of the movement of God um, in the prayers that we offer around those who we set apart for all sorts of functions and roles and places amongst us. Um, and I think we also run the risk on occasions when we try to diminish the distinction between, our, between the ministry and the laity of denying the role of the laity as the people of God. For example, um, if I am preaching, unless you are listening, no sermon happens. That, that, that's a very simplistic, but, but that, so, you know, I, I cannot be a preacher unless there is a congregation who listens. And if we are diminishing, if we're saying, well, actually, we're all um, to, together and there is no distinction between us, we're actually diminishing the role of the laity in various aspects of the life of our congregation as well. How do we discern the mind of Christ amongst us all if uh, we are missing the fact that we're bringing together a whole group of people in different functions and different roles and different aspects? So I think it's it's slightly more, it's slightly, um, okay, I, I would say to you, you're perhaps caricaturing me if you're suggesting that inevitably to use language of ministry and laity is to get into galloping clericalism. I think there is something about affirming uh, a, uh, an action of God amongst us that actually requires different rules. Is there something here to do about trust? Um, mm -hmm. that, uh, we don't trust every member of the congregation in quite the same way. We, we don't trust each person to do certain things in the life of the church. And ministerial formation seems to me to be about creating the kind of people who we can trust to do the kinds of things that ministers do. So we wouldn't trust everybody to be the regular preacher or to be the person who presides at communion. So there is some kind of distinction here, isn't there? Uh, not in terms of a person's essence so much as the, the trust that they carry with the Lord. And they have to be a certain kind and of And they have to be recognised. And I think one of the things that um, I have found disturbing when I meet those who say, um, I, you know, I've become a Baptist, I've joined Baptist Church because, and there's all sorts of reasons where people can give that, but the one, because anybody can do anything. Now that I find deeply disturbing because ecclesiologically it's the church meeting can recognise God's right to call anybody, to, but it's the church, you know, it's the discernment together of the calling of somebody. It's not I turn up one day and say, by the way, I'm going to do this. There is something about recognition and role and trust. Yes, please, uh, Richard. Oh, you should be doing this, David. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Make it run. Make it run. Production. <laughs> I was just trying to think through some of the practic uh, practical implications of the points you're making. And uh, so I, I, I found um, so much of what you said very, very helpful as, as well as, as challenging. It seemed to me that um, out of your presentation, one of, the, one of the key things that 
will be needed for us as being uh, ministers is um, a willing, uh, voluntary um, accountability to our congregation.
calling that's sacramental in the church. And I think that was one of the points, just as God does not only meet us in baptism and communion, but in all sorts of other ways, but promises to meet us in baptism and communion, I was saying, you know, God doesn't only minister through whoever it is who is occupying the role of ministry, but gives ministers to the church as gifts. Yeah. Uh, thanks very much. I want to say thank you for uh, what you said, Ruth. I found it very stimulating. A couple of short thoughts. Um, I don't know if you see any connection or not. That may just be uh, me not getting the point. But uh, I was taken to uh, 2 Corinthians 4. Um, uh, God's light in the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So that, that, that's uh, one, one thing I wanted to say. Um, actually, I, I've got a kind of question which may or may not connect with that. You, you wanted to say that this was very much connected with um, how you saw things in the church, um, but I wonder uh, if the countercultural points you're making about the over-managerialization of everyday life and the over-professionalization of everything kind of thing do apply. You know, if you think in the world of education, have we moved on from education to um, results? Um, I've just had an operation, and I had one 30 years ago, and my whimsical comment is, 30 years ago they believed in nursing, now they believe in efficiency. And I just wonder whether, <laughs> just wonder whether you think that some of the things that you've been saying could actually have some kind of play beyond the uh, ministerial scene. That could well be true. I, you'd need to talk to those who, <laughs> you heard my career, my entire life has been wrapped up in ministry. That could well be true, yes. And um, certainly in education. I think that this, the, the sense of teaching to pass the test yeah. uh, rather than to develop people's person. Yeah. Uh, again, thank you very much, Ruth. Can I put this in a slightly wider context in terms of ordination? Uh, I'm one of those who's old enough to have been trained under George B.C. Murray. And uh, it was George B.C. Murray that conducted my ordination service, uh, which to me was very important, very precious. Is ordination for life? In other words, and I am retired now, officially, according to my pension, is ordination for life, or is it only as long as I can function? Thank you. <laughs>
I came here because I know that I am, and I know that puts me in danger of people booing me out of the room here or taking me to court. However, I have a couple of observations to make. One is that I've always thought that once I trained as a doctor, I would never not be a doctor. Once I retire, I do not lose the skills or the personality which allows me to do that job. The second point, I think, in a very simple way, because I am only a doctor, uh, is that the uh, total is greater than the sum of its parts. And I wonder whether the competencies uh, which, of which I have to cover a whole, whole range of them are the, the sum of the, uh, the parts, but the sum of the part is the personality and the um, person that I bring to the job. But I must confess that I, within my profession, I'm suffering from cognitive dissonance uh, because I am being forced into a task-orientated situation, and I'm trained in a person-orientated profession. Yes, and I think for, for many of, of those who might know who are ministers, that can be our experience in churches. Some of the concepts that we deal with today, that we've dealt with, uh, seem to me to be um, what they call in the trade uh, essentially contested. <laughs> in other words, we will never come to cognitive rest uh, about them, but the, the very value of them is that we, we do actually keep reminding each other that there's another side to all of these discussions, and, that they, and it's in the discussing of them, which I think I from you, Ruth in the discussing of them that were actually kept reasonably balanced and sane. Uh, so uh, we've visited some of those today, and um, well, we don't want to fall out about these things. We want to say, no, there are different perspectives. There always have been in my understanding yeah, of the Baptist history, uh, and, uh, and it's good to keep them alive and living. Uh, but I particularly appreciated the idea that when you've gone beyond the limit of all your competencies, in your incompetence there, God can still use you. Um, that, I think, is a delightful encouragement. So let's say thank you to Ruth Olsen.